Dell TechFest starts now. To thank you for 40 unforgettable years, Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech. For a limited time only, save on select next-gen PCs like the XPS 13 Plus, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at dell.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge technology and free shipping on everything. Again, that's dell.com deals. Today on Something You Should Know, why do people crave comfort food? And just how comforting is it? Then, can you really slow the aging process? Actually, we can do a lot better than that, according to one Harvard professor. Slowing down your aging process to get you to have an average of 14 extra years is easy. Going beyond that, I think, will be possible because we're starting to learn also how to not just slow down aging, but truly reverse the process and reset the body. Then, why is it your stomach growls at exactly the wrong time? And facts about science you likely believe that aren't quite right. Like a day is exactly 24 hours. So it turns out there's really nothing in nature that exactly corresponds to our concept of a 24-hour day. So, for instance, one rotation of the Earth on its axis tends to be different by four minutes from a 24-hour day. All this today on Something You Should Know. Ask a business owner or manager who's looking to hire someone, and they'll often use the word hope. As in, I hope I find someone good. I hope this person works out. You don't want hope. You want to nail this perfectly, because the right people can make all the difference to your business. No, you don't need hope. You need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I think makes Indeed special is that it, it's not just names and resumes. It's a system that guides you through the hiring process to help you get the right candidate for the job. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So th- the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash something. You just go to Indeed.com slash something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on Something You Should Know. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Something You Should Know. Fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hey there. Welcome. You know, almost every day I read in the podcast trade publications about some new podcast being debuted, or often multiple podcasts being debuted every single day, and that there are now like over 3 million podcasts to choose from. 
So I am very honored that you have chosen this podcast to listen to today, and I think we have a really interesting episode for you. And we start today with comfort food. Do you ever crave comfort food? I know I do. Probably everybody does. And well, first of all, it seems that everyone has their own comfort food, and it is directly related to your past. Comfort food seems to be something people associate very significantly with close relationships and probably comes about by individuals coming to associate a particular food with members of their family or social gatherings or the people who took care of them when they were young, which is why we see a lot of comfort foods that are very traditional foods like mac and cheese or chicken soup or meatloaf and mashed potatoes. Or there are things that are consumed at a party, like chocolate cake or ice cream. It seems men and women differ in what triggers a craving for comfort food. Guilt, depression, and loneliness are the main drivers for women, while men typically use comfort food as a reward for success. There is some debate about just how much psychological good eating comfort food actually does. It may lift your mood... Or it may just be an excuse to indulge. As one researcher said, although comfort food will never break your heart, it might destroy your diet. And that is something you should know. Everyone at some point thinks about getting older and what that will be like. How long will you live? And how healthy and active will you remain as you get older? Are there really things you can do to slow down the aging process? Well, that's what Dr. David Sinclair studies. David is a leading authority on longevity. He is a professor at Harvard Medical School. Time magazine named him one of the 100 most influential people in the world in 2014. And he is author of a book called Lifespan, Why We Age and Why We Don't Have To. Hi, David. Thanks for being here. Michael, hi. Great to be on. I think most people believe, I I guess I believe, that aging is really the toll that time takes on all the parts of your body that eventually lead to the end. That's, that to me is aging, which is pretty depressing. But I mean, that's kind of inevitable, right? Isn't that aging? So aging isn't really what people used to think, which was uh, an inexorable decline. It's actually quite malleable. In my lab, we drive it forwards and backwards pretty easily in mice. And that will uh, no doubt be possible within our lifetimes. But eventually, something's going to get you. You can't last forever. Sure. Well, I'm not saying we're going to be immortal um, in the same way that we're, we're going to completely cure cancer tomorrow. But it doesn't mean that it's not a topic that's worth working on. And the reason we should be working on aging, even more so than specifically cancer and heart disease and Alzheimer's, though those are all extremely important pursuits. My mother died of lung cancer. I'd be uh, the last person to say that it's not worthwhile. But the biggest bang for your buck is going to be aging because 90% of the illness that happens, including those diseases I just mentioned, are driven by aging. There's a reason that young people don't get Alzheimer's disease and don't get heart disease. It's because their bodies can heal, their bodies are young. And that if we were to turn the clock back, on an elderly person, those diseases would go away as well. So to turn the clock back, is, is it really a matter of, of reversing or is it a matter of slowing it down so it doesn't get worse faster? The easiest one to do, the easier one is to slow it down. And uh, many people have learned to do that, though we didn't realize it was really slowing down aging. We thought it was just good for us. But now we know that things you do in your daily life uh, that include 
the type of food you eat, when you eat, how much you eat, the exercises, the supplements you might take, sleep. These things we know are good for you. Doctors have been saying that for decades, but now we know very precisely how those things can impact the aging process. So slowing down your aging process to get you to have an average of 14 extra years is easy. It's just those things we can talk about today. Going beyond that, I think will be possible because we're starting to learn also how to not just slow down aging, but truly reverse the process and reset the body. Uh, we just published a paper a year ago uh, saying that we could reverse the age of an eye of a mouse and make it go from blind to having its vision again by reversing the age. So ultimately, we should be able to reverse aging. Right now, it's very difficult, but we're learning every year. So I think probably within the next decade, it could be maybe not commonplace, but certainly very doable to turn your age back by 20 years. So you said a moment ago that in our daily lives, we do things like what we eat, when we eat, supplements, that kind of thing, exercise. So fill in those blanks. What should we eat? When should we eat? What kind of exercise should we do? Well, if there was only one thing I could suggest, uh, it would be to eat less often. The old idea that, that you should be eating three main meals a day, plus having snacks and never feeling hungry, uh, goes against the overwhelming evidence that that's not good for you. And we have this terrible obesity epi epidemic, but even those who don't become obese are not healthy. And the main reason is that our bodies have survival mechanisms that protect us against aging. And they are only turned on when the body perceives adversity. And one of those perceptions is when you're not eating. Um, and so I've cut my meals down. I started skipping breakfast, then I skipped lunch. And now I generally don't eat much, if at all, until dinner. And that means my body goes through the night, all through the day, and then I have a substantial dinner to make up all, for all my calories, and it's very enjoyable. So that that's the main thing. There's also what you eat. Uh, more plant-based seems to be better, uh, but avoid sugar um, and, uh, and saturated fats. Those things will truly drive aging forward. Um, and along with that, you should move. You want to uh, at least do 10 minutes of exercise three times a week. You want to build your muscles or at least maintain them and lose your breath three times a week. So that's that's the very minimum. There are a lot more things we can do besides that, but that alone will get you at least probably five to 10 years of extra life, healthy life, that is. Well, the idea of eating less, you know, would certainly be hard for a lot of people to do. And there is the argument that if you're hungry, if your body is telling you it's hungry, that that must mean something and that that would probably be a good time to eat. Just because your body tells you to do something doesn't mean it's good for you. Our bodies also don't like to exercise, typically. They like us to sit in front of TV or watch a movie and eat popcorn. Uh, and that's, if you do that a lot, it's not going to be healthy. So I, I would actually say that you should often do the opposite of what your body is telling you that it wants to do. So why dinner, though? Why not eat a big breakfast and then not eat again till the next breakfast? What's so special about eating at night? There isn't anything. For me, that works. Some people uh, much prefer eating breakfast, but then they should have a, a late lunch uh, and not eat dinner. What we're trying to do is extend the period of when you're not eating, and people typically don't eat when they're asleep, so that you can either extend either the morning fast or the nighttime fast and get to at least 16 hours without food. And you can substitute, you don't have to feel hungry, you can substitute it with water, tea, even coffee is fine, 
and it's not that hard, especially once you get through that first three week period. Um, I'm very lazy. I like food. I like meat. I like, um, you know, I, I, I was obese as a kid, uh, but I've learned that there are tricks to make it much easier. And, but here's the thing. I'm not out there saying, I'm not here saying, oh, just eat healthy and exercise. Anyone can tell you that. What we've learned in my field of aging research is why they work and how to supplement those activities with things like literally supplements uneven and even medicines and just tweak the kind of food of what you eat when you eat to maximize your potential longevity. Um, and that's a big breakthrough because until about five years ago, we didn't really understand how these things that nutritionists and trainers uh, were actually working. And these are the things that we want to do to maintain our body's defenses. And the body has evolved to survive when it perceives future adversity. Okay. So the idea is to create a state that mimics adversity, not a state that mimics abundance. And abundance right now is everywhere. And that's the problem. Isn't how long you live wrapped up in your genetics? I mean, I've even heard the advice that if you want to know how long you'll live, look at how long your parents lived. So I'm a geneticist and I'm partly guilty, like most geneticists, of saying that DNA is everything. DNA is your destiny. That's true if you have susceptibility to a certain type of cancer, but it's not true for aging. It's not true for your future health. And we know this because twins in Denmark have been studied for decades who are genetically identical. And it turns out identical twins can live very different lives and die very different at different ages, uh, sometimes decades. And so what you can calculate then if you look at hundreds of twins is the contribution of genes versus the environment. In the case of aging, surprisingly, 80% is environmentally encoded, which is great news because we can actually change the way we live. It's much more difficult to choose your parents. When you talk about doing things to increase someone's lifespan, increase it by how much optimally? I mean, hard to imagine the human body lasting 300 years. Right. It's not built to last 300 years. But what we've discovered is that there are reset switches in the body that can turn back time, literally make the body young again and work as though it's young again. And this old idea that we just wear out, that's true for teeth and some parts of the body. But most of the body is capable of great healing, uh, even regenerating organs, and eventually we'll be able to re regenerate limbs like some species. We have that capacity. It's just that it's that body doesn't do it because we only needed to live 40 or 50 years to procreate and pass on our genes going back 50, 100,000 years ago. But now we live in a world where we can change our environment. We live in houses, we have clothes, we have cars, we have computers. The same should be true for aging. It doesn't matter what we evolved to be. Now we can take evolution into our own hands and turn on the body's regenerative potential. And we learned to do that. We cured blindness in mice. This was just an any high school student can do this now. Now what's the challenge is to make medicines that your doctor can send you or inject into you to truly reverse your age. And when you do that, this, this old idea of wear and tear, it turns out not to be true. The body can get rid of these problems and age can go away and the effects of aging also go away. So talk about these medicines. What, what are they? Here's the big picture there are billions of dollars being put towards developing drugs that turn on the body's defenses. And those, some of those are already on the market. There's a drug called metformin for type two diabetes. 
And that drug is taken by millions of people around the world. And those people that take the drug, even though they have type 2 diabetes or high blood sugar, they actually live longer than people that don't have type 2 diabetes, which is a remarkable fact. There's another one called rapamycin, which doctors prescribe. Right now, I would guess that rapamycin is prescribed more for aging than for anything else. But it was originally developed for uh, transplantation patients to stop rejection of those organs. It's also seemingly good for, for preventing and curing cancer. The next type of drug that I am developing, and Jeff Bezos has come into the ring, thrown his hat into the ring with $3 billion of his and other people's money, is to reset the age of the body. Uh, sparked in part by research in my lab and just a few others around the world that have figured out that by turning on genes that are normally not switched on, but only were on when we were embryos keeping us young men, we can truly reset the age of the body, uh, not just by one year, but by, by many years. And a lot of it's been done in animals so far. But the proof of principle is here that mammals, us, have this reset switch and that the body can remember how to be young again. I'm talking with Dr. David Sinclair. He is a professor at Harvard Medical School and author of the book Lifespan, Why We Age and Why We Don't Have to. Always find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine and More. With so many great bottles to choose from at the lowest price, it's easy to find your favorite Cabernet or Chardonnay. Or maybe you're more of a whiskey drinker. One of their single-barrel bourbons is sure to please. With a little help from one of their friendly guides, find the perfect bottle that's just right for you. Hosting friends or family and don't have time to shop in-store? No problem. Total Wine & More makes it easy to get everything you need for any occasion with curbside pickup and delivery. But you know what the best thing about shopping at Total Wine & More is? that every bottle comes with the confidence of knowing you just found something amazing. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, find what you love and love what you find, only at Total Wine & More. Curbside pickup and delivery available in most areas. Visit TotalWine.com to learn more. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. What companies would you want to work for? Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the prestigious Just Capital 2024 seal. Bank of America is ranked number one in the banking industry and number one for their ongoing commitment to workers, offering best-in-class benefits, including a minimum wage of $25 an hour by 2025. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. So, David, when you talk about living a long time, how much longer could you keep someone alive? Well, if you can reset the body by one year every year, you know, obviously that means you don't get old. But I think practically for our generation and those behind us uh, are currently alive, um, 110, 120 is not crazy. There are people that have made it there uh, already. And right now, there's about a 2% chance to reach 100. But people, kids born today, will have a 30% chance of getting to 100. And if there's a 30% chance of getting to 100, um, it makes sense that people will, will break the 122 record that exists for humanity, that at least we know of. Um, but ultimately, there is no law that says we have to age. There's, 
there are plenty of species, even some that are very common uh, and similar to us, uh, such as the bowhead whale, a warm-blooded mammal that lives for hundreds of years. Um, and so we just need to learn from them and uh, be able to apply that knowledge into our healthcare, our daily lives, and, uh, and medicines as well. Does all of this apply to what you look like as well? Like if you live to be 120, will you look like you're 120? Or, or does, this, does all of this include like it'll make you look younger too? Well, the evidence seems to be that you'll look younger too. And it, we, we know this because scientists have looked at people who look young um, and who come from families that tend to live a long time. And, and also you can look at people's biological age now. We can measure it with this test that I mentioned. And those people that are biologically younger and tend to live a long time look younger as well. This makes sense. The skin is a large organ, the largest organ. And if you slow down aging, you will also look younger. And it seems to be the case. And there are a number of people I know who've taken care of themselves, done the right things that I've talked about today taken supplements that seem to activate longevity genes that can look 10 or 20 years younger than others that have not done those things. I always like to ask because much of what you're talking about, I haven't heard before. This is news to me. And you've described it as cutting edge. And often cutting edge is also controversial. So I like to ask, do you have critics? And, and if so, what do they say about what you're doing? Some people don't like that I'm talking to the public so much. They like to be in the ivory tower. Yeah. Um, but I've never shied away from talking to the public, who, by the way, funds my lab's research and, and theirs. So I think the public has a right to this information. But no, my science has been published in the world's leading journals for the last 25, 30 years. That's my defense. Um, I'm not at a crappy institution either. Harvard still has me as a professor there. So, you know, I don't think it, people can criticize my research. I've never been proven wrong yet uh, but do they look at me funny yeah especially if you've never heard of the idea that aging is malleable and and potentially treatable because we we grow up thinking that it's not is it your from your research in doing this is it also i don't know if you would call it a side effect but in addition to living longer would you also be healthier in, in other words are you going to get you're going to live a long time but have all kinds of problems or will you not. Yeah, Michael, that, that should have been my first answer because what's often misunderstood is if you look at a hundred year old, you, you see someone who's frail and old looking typically, and you think, you know, God forbid, I don't want to become that old, but that's missing the point. The point is that we're talking about staying younger for longer and youth is equivalent in most cases to health. So I don't know how to make an animal or a person live longer other than by keeping diseases away. Um, it turns out if you don't get sick and you're, you have friends and family and your loving life, uh, you, you don't die, right? And so I, my goal is to keep people healthy, and that's what I've been doing. Now, as a side effect, you live longer, right? That's just what happens. But the primary goal is extending health, and that's what happens. In, in, say, 100 years ago, people would die more frequently in the middle of life, what we can now call middle of life. Right now, what we're doing increasingly is that most people will survive up until their, their hundreds and then die relatively quickly. 
It seems like people, or many people, have a rather fatalistic view of all of this, that when your number's up, your number's up, you can't control it, and so you might as well enjoy your life while you're here, rather than do all these things that may prolong your life, and, and then you get hit by a bus tomorrow. So, you know, so just enjoy life and do what you can, and, and, and yeah, when your number's up, your number's up. Yeah, well, that's a very 20th century way of thinking. And we used to think that we used to think that way about cancer and heart disease in the 19th century. Uh, but you know, we're, we're, we're definitely in a different world now. The science is now cutting edge. It's I, I can't pick up a leading scientific journal without something about a breakthrough in longevity research, and that's been going on now for, for 20 years. And there have been a couple of Nobel prizes awarded for work that's related to aging. So this isn't what it used to be. It's not a backwater of biology and science. This is the forefront. Um, and I would argue one of the, the most promising and globally emerging areas of medicine and the amount of money that's pouring into this area. Uh, I mentioned some of it earlier from Jeff Bezos, but there's many others around the world pouring billions of dollars into this. I mean, it's no longer that we have to accept just what we're given, um, but we can really actively do something about it increasingly by doing the kind of things that I, I talked about today. Um, but increasingly we'll be really be able to add decades to life beyond what we can just do by being healthy in our daily lives. And we want, I would, I would really encourage everyone who's listening to read my book, but not, not because it's my book, but because there are, is a prescription in there that helps you live longer. So why do you want to live longer? Because you want to stay alive and healthy until these technologies come online. And there will be a day when you can dramatically turn the clock back. It's not going to work on you if you're extremely frail or dead we don't know how to reverse death, but we are learning how to reverse age. And so stick around because the future looks really exciting. And what part of that prescription, you've talked uh, about several things that people can do. What are people doing that's having a negative effect? What should people stop doing? I mean, I don't know. What, obviously, smoking is probably not a great thing to do. But are there other things people are doing that's actually going to take them the other direction? Oh, yeah, many of them. Um, so stop smoking if you do. That accelerates your aging process. We know that. So you're not just looking old externally. Your body is getting older. It's one of the reasons you, you will likely die sooner. So smoking is bad. Sedentary lifestyle, uh, which many of us, including myself, are, are guilty of, uh, and not moving, that's almost as bad as smoking. Um, overeating. The other main thing that people do wrong is um, they stress out a lot. We live in a world that is extremely stressful and, uh, and we don't get enough sleep and we, we get cortisol coursing through our veins. And so part of the, the prescription that I've adopted is to also focus on mental wellness. And that for me includes um, checking in, being grateful during the day, uh, but also uh, doing more and more meditation and trying my best to get enough sleep by avoiding things like a lot of blue light and working too late. Well, this is really exciting stuff. And, you know, I'm typically pretty skeptical about people promising the fountain of youth, but, but you do have the credentials, the credibility, and, and the results in the laboratory work you're doing that really make this very exciting and promising. My guest has been Dr. David Sinclair. He is a leading authority on longevity. He's a professor at the Harvard Medical School, 
Time magazine named him one of the 100 most influential people in the world in 2014. And his book is called Lifespan, Why We Age and Why We Don't Have to. And there is a link to the book in the show notes. Thanks, David. Enjoyed having you on. Michael, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate that. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the Just Capital seal. Bank of America is ranked number one for ongoing commitment to their workers with initiatives like Sharing Success, which awarded 97% of their teammates additional compensation, nearly all in stock. This is the program's seventh consecutive year, awarding more than $4.8 billion in total. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. A lot of things people believe turn out to be just not true. Nowhere is this more apparent than in science. Sometimes there's a grain of truth to it, or maybe it was once accepted wisdom that has since been disproven, or maybe it's just people make it up and then say it often enough and other people start to believe it. But whatever the reason, there are things people commonly believe that just ain't so. As you're about to hear from Philip Bouchard, he is an educator, software engineer. In fact, he designed a computer game several years ago called The Oregon Trail, which went on to sell 65 million copies. Time magazine named it one of the best 10 video games of all time. He has a book called The Stickler's Guide to Science in the Age of Misinformation, the real science behind hacky headlines, crappy clickbait, and suspect sources. Hey, Philip, thanks for coming on Something You Should Know. Mike, um, I'm delighted to be on your podcast. So let's start with the often cited idea that some people are left brain and some people are right brain thinkers and that the two sides of the brain are very different and you have a dominant side and that determines if, say, maybe you're more creative. So is there any truth to this left brain, right brain thing? There's very little. And this is a bit different in, than many of my other topics, where it turns out there is a significant amount of truth mixed with untruth. In this case, it's almost all untruth, although it was based on the this findings that the left and right sides of the brain are not perfectly symmetric. And that led to that spiraled out of control and led to this idea that the left side of the brain controlled logical and math functions, the right side creative tasks, and that one side was dominant over the other, and that controlled your personality. It turns out that none of that is true. However, there are a lot of fascinating things about the brain, a lot of specialized areas in all the different parts of the brain, and those are areas that are well worth diving into. 
And why do you suppose it persists? I mean, people still talk about this, even though it's been more or less debunked. People liked shorthand ideas, little um, ways of categorizing things. And so if you think of it now as merely an analogy, if someone says you're left brain, they're trying to say you're, you're, you tend towards logical and math thinking. And if they say you're right brain, they're saying you're tending towards creative tasks. So even if it's not literally true, it's a, possibly a helpful analogy or, or, or shorthand. Another thing we often hear is that we should eat more superfoods, that there are foods that are somehow super. Uh, blueberries come to mind as like a superfood. Are there superfoods, really? Well, the idea of superfoods is uh, highly exaggerated, but an interesting aspect is that nearly everything that's promoted as a superfood does have certain value. It tends to be either high in certain amino acids or high in antioxidants. It tends to be high in something. But then we take that idea and we go f way too far. We treat them almost as being magical, that if you take a small amount of something called a superfood, it's going to have a dramatic impact on your health. A much better way of looking at it is that you need to have a balanced diet, and the superfoods, so-called superfoods, are uh, helpful part of that diet in order to ensure you get all these essential nutrients. But sometimes you can go with much um, less expensive ingredients than, than whatever is currently trendy. But when you hear people identify a food as a superfood, like blueberries, what is it about specifically about those foods that people have come to think that they're so super? Well, blueberries are mentioned uh, in, in, Picard, uh, in, in part because of the antioxidants. And almost any brightly colored fruit or vegetable is going to have antioxidants. And there are several different kinds of antioxidants. And those are, so those are definitely useful. Uh, people have mentioned quinoa because it has a nice balance of um, amino acids. Um, beyond that, sometimes people mention particular ones that have uh, foods that have particular types of fatty acids in their lipids. Um, so they're uh, like certain fish. So there are um, quite a few different categories. Talk about the five senses, because I think if you were to, you know, stop someone on the street and ask them how many senses there are, they would say five. That's pretty much conventional wisdom. Human beings have five senses. But you say we have much more than that. So, so talk about that. Sure. So the idea that we have five senses is an ancient idea dating back more than 2,000 years. And we, we really wedded to that idea, even though in reality, we have more than five senses. So for instance, in our inner ears, there are organs uh, both for hearing, which is the cochlea, and for balance, uh, so semicircular canals, which detect gravity and acceleration. So there's a sixth sense right there. But in fact, if you look further, you can see quite a few others. You can um, divide up the sense of touch into uh, temperature, which uses different receptors, and pain, which uses different receptors, and different nerve pathways. Or you can look at all these um, receptors inside the body that tell you when you're hungry or thirsty and need to, or need to go to the bathroom and a lot of other things. So all in all, you can see we have more than 30 senses, which is just too many to count up. Um, so if you focus exclusively, though, on the external senses, you'll still have more than five, but you'll have less, probably less than 10. So my favorite model says uh, um, that we have nine senses, as nine principal senses, that are the five traditional senses plus balance, temperature, pain, and position, which is the formal name of which is uh, proprioception.
Well, that certainly sounds right, because and I've always thought that that there are things that you that you sense that don't fall into those five categories very neatly, that they must have their own and should have their own category. Although some scientists just lump a whole bunch of different senses into this broad one called touch. Yeah, like pain, that would be touch. Right. But it isn't really. It, it, isn't, it isn't sensing how things feel. It's feeling how you feel. Right. Not only is the perception different, but it's even different receptors and different nerves. So let's talk about the 24-hour day because that's, I mean, who doesn't believe that? I mean, it's a 24-hour day, but you say the day's not 24 hours. Yeah, so, so it turns out there's really nothing in nature that exactly corresponds to our concept of a 24-hour day. Our concept holds that each day is exactly 24 hours, down to the millisecond, and we rely on this concept for our technology. And yet, uh, an actual day, by any objective measure, tends to be a bit different than 24 hours. So, for instance, one rotation of the Earth on its axis um, tends to be uh, differ by four minutes from our 24-hour day. Or if you measure between true noon, when the sun is at its highest point in the sky each day, that differs by up to 30 seconds or so from uh, 24 hours. So we got our idea of 24 hours, uh, for basically from clocks, by averaging the length of a t- true day across the entire year. And this means that... Um, Everything ends up being a little bit off during parts of the year, where the um, where the sunrise and the sunset are not quite what you would expect, or particularly that the that the by the clocks the noon meet, uh, the sun reaches its highest point in the sky, not at noon, um, but at some other time, fifteen minutes up to fifteen minutes before or after noon, and that's even not taking into account the time zones. Of all the things that you write about and that you've looked at, what, what, what is your, in your view, the most interesting or your favorite to talk about? Oh, there are several, but one of them is the idea that a gene, in, the essence of a gene is just that it's a recipe for constructing a protein. Now, we think of genes as, as um, controlling everything about our, our, our bodies, and, uh, and that's true, but only indirectly, because each gene is simply this recipe for constructing a protein. So we have about 20,000 genes that can make about 90,000 different proteins, and it is those proteins that are actually do all these amazing things that direct our development from a zygote to an adult and that uh, control our metabolism every and every cell throughout our entire lives. So the proteins are the agents of the DNA, the DNA just makes proteins. I know another interesting topic you write about and talk about is this idea that's really part of our culture is that it's important to kill germs. We have to kill germs and microbes and all the little cre- creepy crawly things because they cause a lot of problems, make people sick. Which, in fact, can often backfire on us. There are perhaps a million species of microbes out there and only about 100 that actually harm us. But they, we actually rely on microbes in order for, for our health. So if we over-rely on killing microbes, on, on killing germs, then antibiotics, we can breed um, antibiotic resistance. We can wipe out helpful bacteria in, in our guts. And we can um, cause ourselves to develop autoimmune issues, uh, or at least issues with our immune systems, because of not having enough exposure to uh, microbes as we grow up. So what kinds of things are we doing or overdoing to kill germs and microbes and things? 
Well, one is overuse of things that kill germs, particularly antibiotics. Antibiotics, by their very nature, uh, breed antibiotic resistance. So any antibiotic we use tends to have a limited uh, useful life. So if we are very careful and limited in our use of it, the antibiotic will ha have a much longer life. And But as it is, we sometimes, by giving excessive amounts not only to people but to animals, a new antibiotic may only last for a few decades before it is useless. But don't they just keep coming up with new ones? To an extent, we're not really keeping up very well with it. We are There are a number of uh, multiply resistant organisms, we've staff and others, that now are resistant to uh, certain strains are resistant to all of our antibiotics. So it, um, if you get one of these multiply resistant diseases, uh, organisms, there's really not much people can do for you now. Can we talk about, uh, I want to talk about radiation, because that's a, that's a word you hear a lot about. People are very concerned about radiation. We're surrounded by radiation. There's radiation from cell phones, microwaves, radio towers. Should we be concerned? What, what, are, what are we concerned about? Well, that's a fascinating topic, too. Part of the problem is that the term radiation is really broad. For instance, um, visible light is a form of radiation, and yet we don't really fear visible light. So we have to be a little more careful about how we, we talk about it. So um, the danger from radiation depends upon the type of radiation, the intensity of the exposure, and the duration of the exposure. Some kinds of radiation are unlikely to harm you at all, uh, including most you know, visible light and, uh, and light that has wavelengths that are longer than visible light. But um, short wave visible light, like um, ultraviolet, and X-rays and gamma rays, those can be harmful, and almost any kind of particle radiation can be harmful. But it depends upon the type, again, the type of radiation and how much exposure you have. Specifically, though, people are concerned about radiation from cell phones, from electric wires overhead, from radio transmitting towers. What about those? Those all fall into the category of, of long-wave radiation, so far, there's not been any evidence that these kinds of radiation can cause direct, can directly cause chemical changes on any of our um, cells or any of the molecules in our cells. Um, they can result in heat. We know quite well that if you uh, expose food to high-intensity uh, microwaves, it will heat. So you can cause chemical changes by overheating something. But otherwise, other than generation of heat, there doesn't seem to be any direct connection between uh, these long-wave forms of light and uh, harm to our bodies. One thing I think people have a, or think they have, a pretty good grasp of, because they experience it every second of their life, is gravity. But we don't necessarily understand it as well as we think, I think. Uh, so talk about gravity. Well, we like to, uh, we see astronauts in the, in the, International Space Station, we see them floating around, and we say, oh, clearly there's no gravity. On the other hand, we also know that gravity can act at a long distance because, for instance, the planets circle the sun because of gravity, and that's a lot farther away. The issue here is that at the elevation of the space station, the gravity, Earth's gravity is still 90% of its strength on, as on the surface of the Earth. So it's not a lack of gravity, but the fact that the space station is constantly in free fall. So anything in free fall would be, uh, would be weightless. So imagine you know, a jet plummeting towards the Earth and people inside floating around. 
The difference with the space station, though, is that, is that it has this huge lateral velocity, 17,000 miles an hour. And as it's falling towards the Earth, it's moving so rapidly sideways that the curved path produces an orbit around the Earth. So that even though it's constantly falling towards the Earth, it doesn't get any closer to the Earth. So again, it's that, it's that free-falling rather than lack of gravity that results in the weightlessness. So wait, so at the elevation, where the space station is, gravity is 90% of what it is on. So if the space station were standing still, there wouldn't be a whole lot of difference. Exactly right. If the space station could somehow stand still without falling towards the Earth, then uh, people on the space station would experience, would, would be 90% of their weight as they are on the surface of the Earth. So the moon is in orbit around the Earth. So does that mean the moon is in free fall around the Earth? Yes, absolutely. Now, the farther away the object, the slower its velocity. So the velocity of the moon in this orbit is much less than the velocity of the space station around the Earth. Another thing in science that people, I think, generally believe is in the concept of survival of the fittest, that a species, as it continues to evolve, only the fittest survive, and that's what makes the species better. But you have a different take on survival of the fittest. Yes, the problem is understanding what the word fittest actually means. To be fit in this case is not about being large or strong or smart. It's simply about being able to survive current conditions. So therefore, uh, a species or an individual might be fit because it's very good at hiding or very good at utilizing a new food source. And if those attributes are controlled by genes, then that individual can pass on those genes to the descendants. So survival of the fittest is, simply means having the, uh, in this case, having the genes that uh, helps one adapt to one's environment. Each population of that species has a slightly different environment, and each population is exposed has a, a different locally generated genes due to mutations. So each population within the species um, can evolve independently and result in multiple species. They also one of the consequences of this is if uh, evolution depends upon genetic diversity, there would be no such thing as fittest if every organism in a species had the same genes. The COVID pandemic that we have all been through these last few years has been a major disruption for everyone. But as you point out, it's not that unusual historically. In one sense, it's um, not unusual in that pandemics um, spring up periodically. We can expect pandemics more in the future. And most of them tend to arise these days from um organisms that cross over from animals. Uh, uh, for instance, we get most of our flus from birds. We get most of the, of the uh, COVID diseases, um, or the coronavirus diseases from bats and so on. However, um, COVID was unusual in the sense that it, it's produced the highest number of annual deaths of any disease in over a century. So it really is a very deadly disease. And yet deadly is an ambiguous term here because if we're talking about the uh, the total number of deaths as being uh, deadly, and uh, but not the individual fatality rate for a healthy young person who gets COVID, the the odds of dying are pretty low. 
Therefore, COVID is deadly because of its high infection rate rather than a high fatality rate. And that's unusual? It's, unu- it's unusual only in the sense that we have suddenly uh, have this new, completely new d- disease that has appeared, and, and it has spread so, um, so much that it has jumped ahead of all of our other infectious diseases. It jumped ahead of tuberculosis. It jumped ahead of AIDS. So this is unusual to find something brand new that jumps ahead of everything else, although AIDS did that, of course. That's, so every few decades, we might expect another pandemic that suddenly becomes the most deadly disease in the world. And does it seem that we get better at, at fighting these things, or each one is a new fight and we have to, you know, circle the wagons and figure it out? Certain aspects are sort of repeatable. And the fact that now we are, are able to decode the genetics of a new microorganism so quickly, and we've got now these new techniques from creating vaccines, we, it's in a sort of a brand new world now in the sense that we can respond so much more quickly than we could. For instance, when AIDS came along, it took decades to really uh, get anywhere. And now with COVID, in uh, what a couple of years, we have made dramatic progress in controlling that disease. Lastly, talk about energy and and what you think it is that people don't quite grasp about the concept of energy. Well, energy is a kind of a difficult concept because it's hard to come up with a uh, something that unites all the different forms of energy. And therefore, we tend to sometimes invent other things and call those energy that don't really exist. So if you learn the different principal forms of energy, such as light, energy, heat energy, chemical energy, kinetic potential, electric, um, nuclear energy, and, and, and waves in matter, and learn the properties of these different uh, forms of energy, then you can start to uh, understand energy in its various forms. And as it turns out, uh, one of the most interesting aspects of it is that in almost every case, the importance of energy is only apparent when that energy changes from one form to another. So, for instance, we receive energy into our homes by way of electricity and natural gas, typically. But those only become important to us when that electricity is changed into some other form of energy, for instance, turns into light or turns into the mechanical energy of our devices. And likewise, the chemical energy of the natural gas is only only important to us when it changes into the heat energy from burning it. And this goes on with all kinds of energy. It turns out the significance is almost always connected to a change of state. Great. Well, you know, it's always fun to bust some myths and dig a little deeper and find out the truth about some of these things. And this was really educational. Philip Bouchard has been my guest. He's an educator, software engineer. He designed the computer game The Oregon Trail some years ago that has sold 65 million copies. His book is called The Stickler's Guide to Science in the Age of Misinformation. And there's a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks, Philip. Well, Mike, thank you for talking with me. It's been a pleasure. We all know about the growling stomach. It's the reason why you don't want to go to church without eating something first. Because it always seems to happen at exactly the wrong time. So what's going on when your stomach growls? Well, first of all, it's not your stomach. It's your intestines, mostly. As air passes through, the intestines contract and expand, and that's what makes the noise you hear. 
when you have food moving through your system, it muffles the sound, which is why people tend to associate a growling stomach with being hungry. But actually, you're always making that noise. You just don't hear it very much, because when you've eaten, the food muffles the sound. Occasional stomach growling is completely normal. It happens to everyone. And that is something you should know. We rely on you to help spread the word about this podcast, so please tell people you know, two, three, or four people, ten or better, and that helps us grow our audience. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. No matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax experts make them count. Did you maybe buy a second property to rent out? That's a move. Did you go back to school to get your degree? That, too, is a move. A smart move. Did you commute to work across state lines? You see, that's a move. Did you relocate for a fresh start? Well, that's the definition of a move. Maybe you moved into a house boat instead of a house house. Or perhaps you crushed it in the stock market in 2023. TurboTax experts make all your moves count. Getting you every credit and deduction you deserve, filing with 100% accuracy, and getting your max refund guaranteed. Switch to TurboTax, make your moves, and they will make them count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. Movies, TV shows, books, podcasts, and more. It's what women binge with Melissa Joan Hart and her friend Amanda Lee. We have Lauren Bosworth with us. Yay! The Hills. So what is like your number one question from fans? The primary question I still get asked was, what, is it real? <laughs> In 2024, to me, is a surprising question to get because I feel like everybody has been through the reality TV gauntlet at this point. What women binge wherever you listen.